host, Will Wrights. I load freight with a forklift. I have been a bus driver and a substitute teacher, and I am a history graduate student. I am an ordained pastor, and I hope to become a history professor. In this podcast, we will explore history, theology, pop culture, current events, and perhaps a few other topics along the way. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The opening and closing music is Lo-Fi Summer Background by Vladislav Kurnikov from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. However, if you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate it if you liked and subscribed to Blue Collar Scholar in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast distributor. Writing a review, leaving a five-star rating, and sharing links in your social media platform is also much appreciated. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the final lecture of our World Wars class. We left off last week just almost at the point where the war ended. So let's uh, get to the very end of the Manhattan Project. And that was the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima or Hiroshima, on August 6th, 1945. Three days later, we dropped another bomb on Nagasaki on August 9th, 1945. Japan would surrender in about three weeks' time after that, but they did not immediately make the decision to surrender. We'll get to that in a second. Let's right now talk about our nuclear arsenal at the time. Because as of August 9th, 1945, the United States actually technically has zero nuclear weapons. The Manhattan Project produced three bombs. Trinity, which was exploded in July in the New Mexico desert. It was a successful test. And then the only other two operational bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which thankfully was the last time in human history that uh, nuclear weapons have been used against human beings. It would take some time for the United States to produce more bombs. The next explosions would not happen for almost a year. So the United States Navy gathered 95 obsolete vessels in the Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands. There, we detonated uh, the fourth and then the fifth nuclear weapons to test their effect on ocean ships. Later, we would develop a much more powerful bomb. These bombs that we've already discussed, they were nuclear fission bombs, the splitting of large atoms. A much greater bomb is the hydrogen bomb, which is a, which is a nuclear fusion bomb. They were named, those bombs were named Mike, Ivy Mike, and Mike Shot. Actually, I believe all three of those were nicknames for the same bomb. That test was on November 1st, 1952. And that test was so powerful that it effectively eliminated a tiny Pacific island that literally no longer exists. We would continue to develop, stockpile, and 
use weapons in nuclear tests. We would never use uh, the nuclear weapon again against another human being or in any kind of war situation, but we would continue to test up until September 23, 1992. That last test was known as divider. In total, there were 2,500, excuse me, 2,058 nuclear explosions that have occurred. And of those, a little over 1,000, so 1,032, were American. Of the nuclear explosions that have occurred, 217 were atmospheric, which means they happened in open air. 815 were underground. Now, I know at least some of them were tested underwater. I'm not sure. Those were probably counted as underground in those statistics that I found. What about the Soviet Union at this time? Well, their first test came on August 29, 1949. And that test, most of, of Americans' spy units knew that something like that was coming. And yet, when the Soviet Union finally did test a weapon, it came like a shot in the dark that shocked and scared a lot of Americans. I think a lot of us really liked the idea that we were the only bad boys on the block that had nuclear weapons. But the Soviet Unions were able to fairly rapidly develop their own program. They tested their first thermonuclear device on August 12, 1953. The Soviet Union also successfully tested the largest bomb ever, the Tsar Bomba. That was tested on Severny Island in the Arctic Ocean. That bomb was so powerful that uh, seismic tests and uh, Geiger counter tests could see remnants of that test from all over the world. The shock wave of that blast circled the globe. I don't have it in my notes, but I believe I remember it was like five or six or seven times. It was a magnificent explosion. The Soviet Union would do their last test on October 21st, 4th, 1990. And post-Soviet Russia has not detonated any nuclear weapons. Alright, back to the bombs that actually fell in World War II. After Hiroshima, the Japanese military government showed no signs of wanting to stop. This, by the way, is perhaps a good counterpoint to those who say that what we should have done was dropped one bomb in Tokyo Harbor. So, for instance, a lot of the plans I saw had us taking our most obsolete ship and hugging it or towing it out into the harbor, dropping a bomb on it where everybody could see just how powerful the bomb was. And then if t Japan does not surrender, then we drop a bomb. Then and only then do we drop the bomb on Hiroshima. But even with a bomb dropped on Hiroshima, the Japanese military government showed no signs of wanting to surrender. After Nagasaki, there still was not any imminent signs of surrender, even though we had used two weapons. In fact, probably what pushed Japan closer to surrender than anything 
was after the bomb of on Nagasaki, the Soviet Union decided to quickly get involved in the Pacific War. Up to this point, they had stayed completely out of the war in Asia. So they decided to get involved and invade Manchuria. It was only then that the Japanese government began to waffle because you have an American adversary with these bombs that were so powerful that people before hadn't even fathomed how powerful a bomb could be. And on the other side, you have what is effectively the second most powerful country on earth at this point in 1945 invading your holdings in northern China. They not only saw no chance of victory at that point, but they saw a chance of losing everything, not only to the Americans, but also to the communists of Soviet Russia. I don't know this for a fact, but I've got to believe that the conservative right-wing military government of Japan probably feared the idea of becoming a communist government in the wake of what could have been a, a clear Soviet victory. The emperor Hirohito stepped out of his role as a purely ceremonial emperor and ordered the military government to accept unconditional surrender the terms that were laid out by the Allies at the Potsdam Conference in July. This triggered an attempted coup by staff officers at the Ministry of War. This attempted coup happened on August 14th and 15th. What is significant here is these aren't the top officers in the military, but the level of officers just below that. The reason why the top officers in the military didn't need to coup was because they were effectively in charge of the government. But the level of officers just below the top level, they were the ones that wanted to take over to prevent Hirohito and, in theory, the top military brass from accepting absolute and unconditional surrender. The goal of this attempted coup was to put the emperor under house arrest. They did not want to kill the emperor. But they did want to assassinate the prime minister, a man by the name of Kantaro Suzuki. And they hoped to then prepare the home island uh, in defense to the last man in what was anticipated to be at least an American invasion, if not an American and Soviet invasion of the Japanese home islands. Meanwhile, the United States is sitting around twiddling our thumbs for two weeks wondering whether Japan's going to accept surrender after these catastrophic nuclear bombs. And they weren't showing any signs of wanting to surrender. So, the Air Force General Carl Spatz ordered the resumption of conventional bombing raids. In fact, one of the largest bombing raids the United States would run was the last. They sent out 828 B-29s plus 186 fighter escorts in a conventional bombing raid over Japan on August 14th and 15th, ironically the same days as the attempted coup. In this last bombing raid they targeted transportation infrastructure less than they targeted cities. At this point I believe the United States is anticipating a surrender they're just trying to influence the surrender and the destruction of the populace for the purpose of weakening the populace in an anticipated invasion no longer seems to be on the board. Instead, right now, they seem at this point, they seem to be targeting transportation infrastructure. 
On August 15th, following the attempted coup and the last bombing raid, Hirohito actually went on Japanese radio and announced Japan's uh, impending surrender. For most Japanese, this would be the first time they ever heard Hirohito's voice. The Japanese honored the emperor as something akin to a god or some kind of spiritual deified character and combined with that the fact that he was really just a ceremonial leader meant that he wasn't really outdoing pressers and 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 uh, giving speeches or rallies so this would was likely the first time most japanese had ever heard him speak following the announced surrender douglas macarthur was named supreme commander for all allied powers uh, in the region his title was, did not include the word of. He wasn't the supreme commander of the Allied powers, but supreme commander for the Allied powers. The significance of that seems to be that Douglas MacArthur was put into an administrative capacity that was, I believe they were anticipating it not to necessarily be a an active military leadership where Douglas MacArthur would command forces going into battle, but more of a preparation of him becoming something like a governor. In fact, his power was basically occupational government of Japan. Well, Japan did follow through on their surrender on September 2nd, 1945, aboard the battleship USS Missouri in Tokyo Harbor. Signers from Imperial Japan, as well as designated signers from the United States, Britain, and I believe a, a cache of other Allied powers, signed the surrender and officially ended World War II. And thus began the period of the occupation of Japan. The occupation of Japan came in two phases. The first phase I call pacification and punishment. During this time, Hirohito renounced his divinity, but his position was preserved. It was believed that leaving Hirohito in a, uh, a position of power would, or excuse me, leaving the emperor, the, the office of emperor in place but without any power could go a long way in pacifying the Japanese population and letting them realize and know that Japan wasn't going to be absorbed into a United States empire. Their society and their governments weren't going to be destroyed in toto, but rather stripped of their power to make war and uh, in many ways and for a long time stripped of their power to threaten anyone, let alone the United States. Under this first phase of the occupation of Japan, political leadership was reestablished, military government was disintegrated, and there were some war crime trials. I'll be honest, I don't know much about the Japanese war crime trials. I know a little bit more about the German war crime trials, known as the Nuremberg trials. We'll get to those in a few minutes. During the second phase, phase two of the occupation of Japan, is what I call reverse course. So from 1947 to 1952, the United States maintained the occupation, but the emphasis switched from punishment to promoting prosperity. The goal here was basically to prevent Japan from becoming communist. 
This was about the same time of the fall of China in 1949, as well as the northern invasion of southern Korea in 1950. So the fear of communism spreading in East Asia was not an unfounded fear. So the United States' goal then was to help Japan to become a prosperous nation that could resist communism from within or communist pressure from without, from Soviet, from the Soviet Union or from communist China, or in theory, I guess, from communist North Korea as well. During this time, the United States pressured Japan to remilitarize so as to become an ally against the communist. This involved a red purge in Japan in 1950. Liberals and conservative splits are always relative as to who gets labeled a liberal, who gets labeled a conservative at any point in history and in any country or society. Uh, after World War II, the United States encouraged leftward movement on Japan, which was ironic since Douglas MacArthur was the one doing this encouragement, and Douglas MacArthur, in an American context, was not only a conservative figure, but was basically a right-wing conservative figure in the United States context. But he believed that the best thing for Japan at this point would be a leftward movement, but not obviously a full leftward movement towards communism or even uh, robust socialism. After China, after the Chinese Communist Party victory in China, and after the war in Korea, the United States then encouraged rightward movement in Japan, encouraged the, the Japan to move to, more towards fiscal responsibility, pro-business uh, politics and economics, and the United States encouraged Japan to put themselves in a position where they could resist communism. Well, the United States occupation of Japan ended in April 1952. That was about seven years, about six and a half years after the end of World War II. So the occupation lasted longer than the war itself, but it didn't feel like it was a very long occupation. Nevertheless, Japan had shown signs that they were able to survive as a demilitarized government with enough liberal stances, enough liberal position within their government that they weren't going to necessarily, or it didn't seem like they were going to fall back into a right-wing militaristic government. However, conservative enough that they weren't going to fall into a communist or heavily socialistic government as well. Now, the United States did keep occupation of the island of Iwo Jima until 1968, Iwo Jima today is part of Japan and actually is technically part of the city of Tokyo, even though it's nowhere near Tokyo. I believe the island is basically treated as like a city park within the government organization of the city of Tokyo. And we would maintain occupation of the island of Okinawa until 1972. Now, as part of the end of occupation, Japan had to sign a treaty that allowed the United States to keep U.S. military personnel stationed in Japan. That treaty expired in 1960 and was replaced 
by the U.S.-Japan Treaty of Mutual Cooperation and Security. That treaty is still in operation, as evidenced by U.S. personnel stationed at Yokoto Air Force Base. Now let's switch to Europe. Germany was also under occupation, but the occupation of Germany was much more complicated. In Japan, it was basically America and America alone functioning as the occupiers. We did have a, a lot of thanksgiving to, or a lot of thanks to give to Britain and the Soviet Union for their aid in defeating Japan. Uh, more so with Britain. Britain fought against Japan through the whole war in the Pacific. The Soviet Union very specifically stayed out of that war until just the last weeks of the war. So much more thanks given to Britain for the defeat of Japan. But for the most part, it was an American victory and American occupation. Germany was a much more complicated situation. The entire country of Germany was split into four occupation zones. And to make it even more complicated, the city of Berlin, which fell under the Soviet occupation zone, the city itself was divided four ways as well. So enclaves of the British French and American occupation zones existed within the Soviet occupation zone uh, in the city of Berlin. The Soviet zone, not including the sections of West Berlin that, that were under occupied occupation by the Western Allies, the Soviet zone was reorganized into the nation known as East Germany, and that reorganization was in 1949. The American, British, and French zones were in effect uh, during that time. Those zones coalesced and formed the nation that would be known as West Germany. That was formed in 1949, but portions of West Germany would remain under occupation by the Allies until 1950. But the occupation of Japan, or excuse me, the occupation of Germany basically ended in 1950. Now, immediately following Japanese surrender, there were war crime trials. The war crime trials were t took place in Nuremberg. I would like to take a second and look at the list of defendants. I'm not going to go through them all, but some of them were significant. We already know that Adolf Hitler killed himself, as did his... Uh, propaganda minister Gables, but a lot of other big-time Nazi power brokers uh, did not kill themselves and were taken were were taken into custody and had to face trial. I'm going to go through these alphabetical as that's how they're listed in Wikipedia. First was Martin Bormann. He was tried. Uh, in absentia, they could not find him. In fact, it was discovered uh, in 1972 when his remains were discovered that he probably killed himself in early May 1945. But he was tried in absentia as the Nazi Party secretary uh, during. Well, he was he. Rudolf Hess was also the Nazi Party secretary, but he succeeded as Nazi Party Secretary during the latter, latter events of World War II was sentenced to death. Karl Donitz, who we've mentioned before, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Uh, his 
real only crime seems to be unrestricted submarine warfare, but we've already discussed that before. The United States did unrestricted submarine warfare in the Pacific. Unrestricted submarine warfare is a brutal form of war and probably should be outlawed, uh, and, and as far as I know it is outlawed, uh, by international law today, but at the time it was just seen as hard war. Donitz was convicted mostly because the Soviets did not want to acquit anyone. He was convicted of just 10 years. He served pretty much, yeah, he served the whole 10 years. He was one of the only person, one of the only people to serve prison sentences that did serve their whole sentence, mostly because his sentence was short, but mostly because he was an unrepentant Nazi. He never did... uh, denounced the Nazis or what Hitler did or what the Nazis did until his dying day in 1980 he was unrepentant of being a Nazi or what the Nazis did. Hans Frank was sentenced to death and he was hanged on October 16th. All of these people that I mentioned were hanged were all hanged the same day. October 16th. He was the Governor General of Occupied Poland, and a lot of war crimes happened in Occupied Poland. Wilhelm Frick was sentenced to death and also hung. Remember, like I said, everybody I said gets hung, was hung on the same day, October 16th, 1946. uh, Wilhelm Frick was Hitler's Minister of the Interior, and he basically served as the uh, occupying governor of Bohemia and Moravia. Hans Fritsch was actually acquitted. He was a propaganda minister, but he was not found guilty of crimes. He was, however, convinced by a different court, a denazification court, and served a few years in prison before he was released. He would go on to have a long and successful career in German radio until his death in 1953. Walter Funk was sentenced to life imprisonment. He was Hitler's Minister of Economics. He was released in 1957 due to poor health and died in 1960. Ermann Goering was the big wig. He was the highest ranking Nazi to face trial. He was sentenced to death. Ermann Goering was commander of the Reichsmarschall. He also commanded the Luftwaffe. And so he was in charge of things like the Blitz of London. Uh, He was the original head of the Gestapo. He was, for a long time, the second highest ranking member in the Nazi party and was Hitler's designated successor until late in the war when Hitler grew uh, suspicious of Goering and removed him from power, or at least removed him from the role of successor uh, in case Hitler ever dies. Goering, though, was not hung. He was able to commit suicide the night before his execution. Rudolf Hess was sentenced to life imprisonment. He was Hitler's deputy Fuhrer until he flew to Scotland, apparently under his own volition. He wasn't told to do this. He flew to Scotland in an attempt to broker peace with the United Kingdom. Uh, As soon as he arrived in Scotland... Not to no one's surprise, he was imprisoned and held in uh, prison throughout the duration of the war. So he was sentenced to life imprisonment, therefore mostly for his work 
with the rise of the Nazis and the beginning of the uh, Holocaust or, or, the, or the stages that would lead to the Holocaust, but he was uh, not hung with the, the others because he basically wasn't there for a lot of the crimes during World War II. He would spend the rest of his life in Spandau Prison where he would commit suicide in 1987. Alfred Jodl, who's usually the name brought up for if anybody wants to criticize the Nuremberg trials for saying maybe they got a little bit zealous and, and probably uh, executed people that didn't deserve to be executed. Alfred Jodl was, for the most part, he seems to have been a military officer alone. He did not necessarily have as many connections to the Nazi party, although he did, for instance, sign orders for the execution of Allied commandos and Soviet commissars. Uh, interesting about Yodel is he was the one who actually signed Germany's surrender with the Allies on May 7, 1945. Uh, he was hung, and a, a German court later posthumously rehabilitated him in 1953 saying that he, he, he was hung unjustly but then a different court decision reversed that so he remains an open question about whether Alfred Jodl should have been executed or not next we have Ernst Kaltenbrunner he was the highest ranking member of the SS remaining to be tried at Nuremberg uh, as a member of the SS he was involved with all kinds of war crimes but his biggest crime seems to have been that he was the highest ranking member of the SS remaining for the Nuremberg trials and the feeling was that the SS had to pay for their incredible crimes not, including but not list, limited to the Einsatzgruppen, Einsatzgruppen death uh, patrols and so he was hung Wilhelm Keitel was sentenced to death. He also was hung. He was the head of the OKW. The uh, he was the OKW, the Oberkommander der Wehrmacht. Basically, if I understand the OKW correctly, it's like a an elite force or the um, spy ring within the Wehrmacht, which is the overall German military unit. He was known for his unquestioning loyalty to Hitler, which probably led to his uh, hanging instead of imprisonment. Uh, Gustav Krupp von Bolen und Halbach. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing some of these names correctly. He was a major industrialist. As a major industrialist, he was involved with the use of slave labor, mostly from Jewish slaves, uh, members of... Uh, concentration camps, but he was neither acquitted nor hung. He was listed as a no decision. Also on the no decision front was Robert Ley. He was the head of the German labor front. Uh, he died by suicide in 1945, so he would not. that's probably why he had no decision, as he was already gone. Baron Konstantin von Neuroth, he was sentenced to 15 years. He was the Minister of Foreign Affairs for Hitler. Franz von Papen was actually acquitted. He was the Chancellor of Germany serving uh, during the Nazi reign from 1932. And he also served uh, as the Vice-Chancellor from 1934 to 1935. 
excuse me, from Chan- he was vice chancellor from 1933 to 1934. He was ambassador to Austria and ambassador to Turkey. But he was acquitted. Eric Rader was sentenced to life imprisonment. He was Many thought he might be executed like Alfred Yodel. They both had similar profiles, mostly military instead of Nazi affiliation. But he was imprisoned to life imprisonment. Then you have Joachim von Rippentrop. He was sentenced to death. Uh, Rippentrop was basically the Secretary of State for Hitler. Um, his name it goes down in history mostly for being part of the Molotov-Ribbentrop uh, treaty, which was a, a secret treaty that meant that Ger- Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia would not fight against each other at the early stages of the war until later when the Germans, the Nazis, broke that treaty it is honestly probably because of that that the Soviets pushed very hard to make sure Ribbentrop was one of the men hung. Alfred Rosenberg was a racial theorist. A lot of his ideas were instrumental in creation of the final solution to end uh, the Jews, what we now know as the Holocaust. He was hung. Uh, Franz Sockel was sentenced to death. He was the person who, if I'm reading this right, he led the Nazi slave labor program. Dr. Uh, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his first name. Dr. Let me try. Hjalmar Schott. He was acquitted. He was a prominent banker and economist. You'll find a lot of the people who were acquitted were those who were economic leaders within Nazi Germany who benefited from slave labor. Uh, We're at the S's. Baldur von Schirach was sentenced to 20 years. Uh, he was the head of the Hitler Juden, the Hitler Youth. Uh, he expressed repentance for his crimes and was released in 1966. Arthur Sayas Inquart, he was sentenced to death. He was instrumental in the Anschluss, which was the uh, occupation of, German, of Austria into Nazi Germany. And he was Austrian Chancellor in 1938. He was Deputy uh, Leader to Hans Frank in Poland in 1939 and 1940. He expressed repentance and yet was hung. Albert Speer uh, was sentenced to 20 years. He was Hitler's friend and a, a, an archi- Hitler's favorite architect. And finally... Oh, I guess there's nobody on the list after S. Julius Stryker. He was sentenced to death. He was the Gautleiter of Franconia from 1922 to 1940 when he was relieved of authority but was allowed by Hitler to keep his official title. But his real crime was apparently the pu- being publisher of the anti-Semitic new- weekly newspaper The Der Stürmer, or The Stormer. Which, by the way, is why the American Nazi Party, their website is known as the Daily Stormer. And Stryker was hung. There were other uh, Nuremberg trials. 
there was an entire trial done to try to get some of the economic leaders, but the, the list I gave you was the main list of the first and most important of the trials. The Germans, the German people, by and large, thought that it was just going to be a show trial. However, there were a few acquittals, which surprised people, and there were a handful of prison sentences instead of hangings, and that came as a surprise. In time, the legitimacy of the Nuremberg trials has largely been accepted and is the foundation of international law today. But international law never quite worked the same way again. Nuremberg, the, the people who put on the Nuremberg trials were basically working from a blank slate. Nothing like this had ever really been tried. There had been show trials throughout history where people were put on trial but they were already guilty and it was just going through the motions. But actually trying to put people under international law to try them and punish them if appropriate, something like that had never been tried. And it was so successful that it led a lot of people to believe that it would be successful like that forever. But international criminal courts don't really work the same way today because, because for the most part, people who are tried by international criminal courts are from, and often are in, countries that haven't signed those treaties and therefore there is no way of punishing them because they'll just remain outside of the jurisdiction of international criminal courts. Today, Many nations do not participate with the World Criminal Court. So, for instance, China and India never signed the treaty to join the World Criminal Court. The United States and Russia signed the treaty, but the Senate and the Russian Parliament, I'm not sure what, what that's called off the top of my head, the Diet? I'm not sure. The, basically, the U.S. and Russia, Russian Parliaments never ratified those treaties. So, for instance, Vladimir Putin right now is under sanction by the ICC for the kidnapping of Ukrainian children and illegally taking them to Russia to be indoctrinated as Russians. And yet, since the Russia is not part of the ICC, he is under no obligation to turn himself in or to face punishment. Now, following Germany's surrender and the Nuremberg trials and the reorganization of the occupation zones into East and West Germany. Germany basically became a key political pawn in the Cold War. In 1948, the Soviets blockaded West Berlin. The Allies then proceeded to airlift absolutely all material needs to Berlin for almost a year until the Soviets finally allowed a single road connecting uh, West Berlin to West Germany for the Allies to be able to continue supplying West Berliners who were part of West Germany even though it was an enclave right in the middle of East Germany. West Berlin was therefore an easy point of access for any East Germans who wanted to sneak into West Germany. So, with no warning, on August 13, 1961, East Germany and the Soviet Union quickly constructed a wall around the entire West Berlin enclave. The barbed wire went up instantly, and concrete barriers were completed within two weeks. Many people were caught on the wrong side, 
there were stories of some people who were just out to lunch on one side and by the time they tried to return home they were cut off by barbed wire. Therefore, our final recommended movie is Bridge of Spies starring Tom Hanks which came out, oh gosh, about seven or eight years ago now. A fantastic movie. Um, Bridge of Spies follows the once a, a, a Soviet spy in America gets caught, that Soviet spy is exchanged for Gary Powers, a U.S. spy plane pilot who was captured in the Soviet Union. And all of that, the, the drama around that exchange takes place in uh, Berlin across a bridge that, if I understand it correctly, is, is part of the... East Berlin, West Berlin divide. In time, West Germany would again grow economically powerful and would basically be the most powerful economic nation in Europe as Germany, unified Germany, is today. The final thing we will talk about is why World War III never broke out. Well, I believe the reason World War III never broke out is because of mutually assured destruction. It's the same reason none of Ukraine's allies have even suggested the idea of invading Russia, or at least invading Russia to the point maybe of, of 20 or 30 miles into Russia, forcing the Russians to pull out of Ukraine to defend their territory, which would be a very successful military move. The reason we haven't even hinted at that possibility is because Russia has nuclear weapons. And we do not want to get into a nuclear war. And Russia does not want to get to, into a nuclear, nuclear war. Nobody wants to get into a nuclear war because nobody wins a nuclear war. That is known as mutually assured destruction. You're not going to strike me because if you strike me and any of my bombs survive, then I'll strike you and we will effectively destroy both of our countries. And so the Soviets and the Americans never faced off against each other directly in war. Instead, each side would engage in a long Cold War, which involved a lot of standoffs, a lot of brinksmanship, a lot of gamesmanship within the United Nations and other international settings. It would be basically 50 to 60 years of tension and stress between the Soviet Union and her allies on one side and the United States and our allies on the other. During this time there were a series of proxy wars that would go on. So for instance we all know about the the war in Korea that we took part in but the Soviets did not. The Chinese did and that was probably therefore the closest World War III ever came to breaking out. But China in 1949, 1950, 1951 was not the powerful country that it would be, say for instance, today. We took part in Vietnam, but the Chinese and the Soviets did not. Meanwhile, the Soviets marched their troops and their tanks through the streets of East German capitals whenever, um, so for instance, if, if Hungary were to show any signs of rebellion, the Soviets would march their tanks right down the middle of Budapest. 
that kind of stuff happened a lot and we did not stand in the way. The Soviets invaded Afghanistan and while we aided the Mujahideen to fight against the Soviets, the United States itself did not go into Afghanistan at that time in the late 70s, early 80s in order to fight against the Soviets. So both sides would engage in a series of small hot wars, but they would not fight each other. And so World War III never broke out. Instead, the second half of the 20th century became a series of mostly unsuccessful small wars with the Western allies trying to show their power and the communist countries trying to show their power as well. That is probably the best place. There's all kinds of stuff we could talk about as far as the effects and the legacy of World War II, but I think that is probably the best place to close this class out. Thank you guys for joining us for this class and on the podcast, and we will soon be uploading other classes, other uh, lectures from other classes, and hope to you join us for that. Bye. We hope you have enjoyed this production of the Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. Any factual errors made in the preparation or recording of this podcast are unintentional, and your feedback is welcome. You may contact me at thewillwrights at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-W-I-L-L-R-E-I-T-Z at gmail.com. The Blue Collar Scholar is written Hope you have enjoyed this episode, and we hope you will be back to download more. And thank you.